Our call to worship this morning is Genesis 2, 8 to 17. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Today's Old Testament reading comes from Joshua 12. These are the kings of the land that Joshua and the Israelites conquered on the west side of the Jordan. From Baalgad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir. Their lands that Joshua gave as an inheritance to the tribes of Israel according to their divisions. The hill country, the western foothills, the Arabah, the mountain slopes, the desert, the Negev, the lands of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. The king of Jericho, the king of Ai, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jeremoth, the king of Lachesh, the king of Eglon, the king of Gezer, the king of Deber, the king of Geder, the king of Hormah, the king of Era, the king of Libna, the king of Adullam, the king of Meda, the king of Bethel, the king of Tapua, the king of Hefer, the king of Aphah, the king of Lashron, the king of Madon, the king of Shimron, Miron, the king of Ashef, the king of Tanakh, the king of Megiddo, the king of Kadesh, the king of Jokanim in Carmel, the king of Dorm, the king of Goyam in Gilgal, the king of Terem, 31 kings in all. The New Testament reading is from Revelation 21. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will, drink, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I want to start this morning with a couple notes of gratitude. Uh, Lynn Verdi is subbing for Bev Bell. I much appreciate your work, Lynn. Thank you for being with us. And... uh, Bunny looked 
high and low and far and wide for an arrangement of Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. And I appreciate, Bunny, uh, you doing that for us. And what fun it is to uh, hear that, that, that music. So, And how about Joshua reading all those kings? That was a little bit rough, wasn't it? Good job, Joshua. Well, we left off uh, last week with the destruction of Ai. I didn't go into great detail there, and I probably won't today either. But recall that the story of Ai is told as a sad one. And there's a note that I want to put in here uh, retrospectively because it's important as we go forward in thinking about one of the lessons that we are to learn as we read the story of Joshua. I don't usually read the Bible stories as moral lessons. They are often that, and as children, they were certainly that to us. But there's so much more there than simple moral teaching. And yet one of the moral lessons we learn from Joshua, if you will, it's a spiritual, it's a practical lesson, is to go to the Lord. Seek the Lord. Now what I mean by this, and I want to start, too, by putting myself at the end of the line here. Many of you are like me reasonably capable and self-sufficient. You like to figure things out for yourself and you like to make your own choices, act on them and bear the consequences for the most part, particularly if the consequences are good. I don't even have to ask you if that describes you. I know that that describes most of you. And so very often it's, it's difficult with that kind of mindset, especially in the American context, the lone man on the Western Front, so to speak, the uh, guy who solves all of his own problems, pulls himself up by the bootstraps, takes charge, takes control, is the master of his destiny and fate and so forth. With that sort of mindset that we come to in this part of Western culture, the idea of seeking the Lord before acting is a strange one indeed. At least for me. Lord, what should I do? It almost feels like abdication of choice. It almost feels like the adoption of a powerlessness. It often feels to me when I go to that approach like I've just decided to give up my brains, give up my heart, give up my intuition, and just sort of say, well, what is it to be? I don't know if any of you ever feel that way or not. So I confess freely, going to the Lord first is a lesson I'm continuing to learn. Joshua attacked Ai without going to the Lord. Had he gone to the Lord, given the relationship that he and the Lord had, and the way God communicated with Israel he would have heard from the Lord that Israel would be losing the battle against Ai. That there was corruption in the camp and that that would need to be dealt with. Instead, Joshua orders the attack on Ai. People are killed. Their confidence is shaken and they're sent back to the camp of Israel wondering what had happened and why God has let them down. 
Now, one of the very human pieces in this story is Joshua goes before the Lord and said, why have you abandoned us? <laughs> it's Davidic almost. Uh, it, it echoes some of Moses' uh, followers. Why didn't you leave us on the other side of the Jordan in peace? Here we are coming to inherit the land. We're doing what you've said to do, and we've been routed. And the Lord says, no, I haven't abandoned you. One of yours broke my covenant and took things that didn't belong to him. And not just anything. This is a theme that will emerge in Joshua. Sacred things. A garment from Babylonia. A wedge of gold and talents of silver. You know the story of Achan. And a little sideline for you is that the Valley of Achor, if you've ever heard that, is named for him and his family who were taken there stoned and buried in a mound of stones following the discovery through lots as to who had taken what. One of the very interesting parts of the story as well that I'm not going to directly refer to in the interest of time is the way in which Joshua speaks to Achan when the lots point to him. Praise God, my son, and give him the glory. Do not hide anything from me. Even though Achan was at the edge of judgment, he was to praise God and give him the glory. And I heard that and I thought, perhaps this is a crime and punishment situation, not a casting away forever situation. But the problem was dealt with. AI was attacked. And as I mentioned last week, completely destroyed. Every man, woman, child, every living thing was burnt. Its treasury was looted, taken. Gold and silver were taken in this case. But nothing sacred that would hint of idolatry or the worship of another god. So intent was Joshua on focusing finally this people who had been enslaved for so long and in the desert so long on an unshakable monotheism and an unshakable faith. I mentioned the renewal of covenant, but let's turn to that in 839. Moses, following the victory in Ai, excuse me, Joshua, following the victory in Ai, built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, as Moses had commanded. There were no tools used on the stones, and they offered a burnt offering. And Joshua copied in the presence of the Israelites on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. And Joshua read the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as is written in the law. And these are found in Deuteronomy, which we have not, not looked at in detail. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. 
and now the die was cast and set. There had been the deliverance from the west of the Jordan into the promised land to the east of the Jordan. There had been the defeat of Jericho and the salvation of Rahab and her household. There had been someone in the camp who stole sacred things from places and hid them in his tent. There had been an assumption of ongoing victory and Joshua had not approached the Lord and had attacked Ai. There was defeat followed by inquiry of the Lord and the discovery of the culprits in breaking the covenant relationship. There was punishment, severe punishment, as the losses in Israel had been real and severe. And there was a re, a new, a new campaign against AI, which was very successful and resulted in the total destruction, followed by a recommitment of Israel. This time, not a circumcision at Gilgal of all the people, but this time, a building of an altar and an offering and a committal, if you will, of all Israel again to the one true God and to the commands and covenants that that God had issued. So we enter the next phase of what this is about. And I want to I take time today to tie together the texts that have been read. Because believe it or not, uh, at least in my mind, they have a correlation. And I would like to bring that together for you as, as we look at what's going on. Joshua is given the dirty work, if you will, of taking the promised inheritance, of reclaiming land in part that had been Abraham's. But Abraham had many co-inhabitants in the area as well. It was Joshua's job to finally, finally rid the land of these people and to receive it fully as the inheritance promised. These passages, as a footnote here, are problematic in that we find a sort of genocide ordered. And in our modern sensibilities, we shake our heads and say, what kind of God would do this? And why the women and the children? And why the cattle and the sheep? And why everything within? And I can't offer you a justification because I don't live in the mind of God. I can offer you theologies that say this is a act of God that has a mercy all of its own. I can offer you a theology that says this is somehow a distortion of the reality. I can offer you a theology that speaks to judgment. What we have in our own tradition primarily is the understanding that the cup of wrath, which is real throughout Scripture, on the parts of these people had been filled. What we find is that where people were willing to turn away from idolatry and toward the God of heaven, there was justice, there was compassion, there was grace, there was salvation. What we find for those who clung to idolatry and to the practices and the immoralities that went in the worship of those gods, uh, their cup was full and they were destroyed. 
So Joshua's job is the dirty work of doing this, and he gets to the next portion of his campaign, which is really central Israel. First campaign in in taking the land of central Israel. And it is a campaign. Let's make no uh, bones about this. This is not an uninherited, this, excuse me, an uninhabited territory. This is not a place where there's nothing. This is a place where there are olive groves. This is a place where there are vineyards planted. This is a place where there are stone walls and cities. This is a place where there are nomadic shepherds. And this is a place where people live and dwell. This is a place where, according to scripture, tens of thousands live. And when Joshua is fulfilling the work and promise of the Lord to take this land, he has to stand before the people and remind them of three things constantly. One we we talked about two weeks ago, or a week ago, and that is be strong and courageous. Let not your heart fail you, for I, the Lord, will be with you. Secondly, we talked about what it meant to be committed. And we're talking about that today. You note the recommitment of Israel through the circumcision of all the males. You note the recommitment of Israel to the renewal and copying of the law and the reading of the law. You notice the recommitment of Israel through the establishment of a priesthood as we go forward that will be spread throughout Israel. And serve all of Israel. Over and over and over again, the themes in Joshua have to do with taking the land, reinstating and reaffirming and reestablishing and shoring up and making certain that there is a monotheism, one God only that is worshipped and served. An emphasis on covenant and renewal. And, of course, the apportioning of the land, which will come later. So, I hope that's clear. It's a military campaign. It's dirty work. It's not going to be easy. And when everybody around starts to hear that the Israelites in town, and that the Lord is with them, and that God has done miraculous things again, just as he did in parting the Red Sea many years before, just as he did in helping this people survive desert conditions for 40 years, Just as the Lord acted mightily in ways before, so the Lord is acting mightily again. And when people hear about it, they're terrified. And the Hivites devise a great deception, chapter 9. Now, when all the kings of the west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country and the western foothills, along the entire coast of the Great Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to make a war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. And here's what they did. They went to Israel as a delegation. They went to the Dorcas and they found all of the shoes with holes in them and the broken sandal straps, those things that had not been polished and well taken care of. They found all of the threadbare tunics. They found all of the faded and threadbare scarves and whatever headdresses and 
whatever their garb would have been. They made sure they went to the compost pile and pulled up the moldiest of bread that they could find and the hardest of cheeses and anything else that they could put their hands on that would indicate a great passage of time. And they went to Israel and said, Oh, Israel, we have traveled from a great, great distance, from a country far away, because we have heard of the greatness of your Lord. Now make a treaty with us. I wish Joshua had learned his lesson. Go to God. Go to the Lord. But he hadn't. He employed his wisdom, as did his counselors, and they said, well, what if you are deceiving us and really live close by? And they said, oh, come on, please. Look at the clothing we're wearing. It was in good shape when we left. Look at the provisions we've brought. Why, this bread was warm from the oven the day we departed. So Joshua and the elders of Israel did not consult the Lord, and they made a treaty with these Hivites, with the Gibeonites. And then it became plain that they lived in cities close by. But now, since an oath had been sworn before the Lord, the people could not go and attack the cities, the Gibeonites. They could not go wage war. They instead went to see them and said, why have you done this great deception, this terrible thing? And the Gibeonites were very practical about it. We're your servants. We just knew that you were going to utterly destroy every man, woman, and child among us, and we decided we would live by any means. Joshua said, you will be our servants, our water bearers, and our woodcutters for perpetuity. And so it was. Now, interestingly enough, I'm going to skip ahead and come back. In the reading that Joshua just did, the last of the kings was, of the cities was Goyim. Did you hear that word? What is a Goyim? It's a non-Jew, but more than being a non-Jew, it connotates something very particular. No, not at the, non-Jews are uncircumcised, at least at that time, but it implied servitude. I've told you these stories before, so I won't tell you them again in great length, but when I lived in central L.A. in a very orthodox area, and I would take a Sabbath morning walk, there were several times in my experience there was I, where I was inquired about as to whether I was Jewish, and when it was clear that I was not, I was asked to perform the duty of a Sabbath goyim. I was asked to turn on an air conditioner or to turn off a light. These things would have been violations of Sabbath for a Jew to perform, but for a non-Jew headed for hell anyway, it, it really didn't matter. So all I had to do was go turn on the air conditioner. But it was amazing to me that these very nice Orthodox people, or in some cases Hasidic people, would inquire so diligently. You know, are you sure you're not Jewish? You, you, they didn't want to be guilty of anything. But I was to them a Sabbath servant. Now, I'm not offended by this in the least. 
I'm just the type of person who this, this doesn't bother me. Happy to help. But that word goyim comes from the king of the Gibeonites who would later then be the servants of Israel drawing water and chopping wood. Interesting, huh? We have this great deception and we find Joshua confronting them on it. And we find that the whole assembly of Israel is upset with Joshua on this, verse 18. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but all the leaders answered, We have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us by breaking our oath. We swore to them. They continued, Let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. And so the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us? Which is what I just shared with you. So Joshua, verse 26, saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose, and that is what they are to this day. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king and that the people of Gideon, Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city like one of the royal cities. It was larger than Ai, and all of its men were good fighters. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hoam, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon, Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said, because it has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took positions against Gibeon and attacked it. Now this is interesting to me. The enemy, the real enemy, is Israel. And yet it doesn't do any good when your friends are making treaties, does it? with the enemy. And they needed to send the Gibeonites and the world around them a very strong message. You will not partner. You will not create an alliance. You will not work with Israel. You will help us destroy them. And Joshua got wind of this and in a turn that surprises me, decides that he is going to fight for Gibeon. This is bizarre, isn't it? Do you think this way? I don't think this way. But I would have thought, ah, serves them right. You know, they fooled us. So now this is God's judgment. Let the kings take care of them and we're done. Then we'll go take care of the kings. That's how I would have handled it. But it didn't work that way. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid. There it is again. And we read it in Revelation. I have given them into your hands. None of them will be able to withstand you. After an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, 
who defeated them in a great victory at Gibeon. What that means, that word confusion, total panic, utter chaos is what that means. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Bataron and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makeda. I don't know where those places are, I'm sorry to say. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Bataron to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down from on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelite. Who does the battle belong to? The Lord. And there's an interesting thing that happens. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Aihalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself upon its enemies as it was written in the book of Jashar. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There's never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. God does what God wants to do. There is no scientific explanation for this. Obviously, if the world quits spinning, even for a minute, utter and total destruction come to the planet. The tectonic plates shift unimaginably. People no longer have gravity to hold them to the earth. So the earth kept spinning in, in its orbit, which leaves the sun to accelerate. If the sun accelerates, then that does change everything in relationship. It may have been that God refracted light or did something interesting to make it appear a certain way. I have no idea what happened that day except Israel records it as a day the Lord lengthened because the battle was the Lord's and he helped them rout these people completely. That's the thing about miracles. I don't get to decide how they happen. That's the great thing about miracles. I don't have to figure out what God did. It's the great thing about miracles. I get to be me and God gets to be himself. And I think all of us would be much happier in life if we let God be God and we went on our own way doing what we're called to do. I'm not trying to give you an excuse to be lazy and thinking about things. I'm not trying to say you're not right to ask the question. I'm not saying that it isn't just a bit puzzling. But some sources seem to indicate that there are stories that are global, including stories from China of a long day. So for whatever these are worth, let's take courage because the battle was the Lord's. These five kings are routed. These Amorites are finished. Just as a footnote, the way this all ends up happening is that everything, of course, is destroyed except for the king, who then is brought before Joshua. And what he did with the five kings in particular was interesting and gruesome. It was meant, I believe, to encourage the people to be what Joshua had been exhorting them to be. Be strong and courageous for the battle is the Lord's. He took the elders of Israel and had them stand upon the necks of the five kings. And then he ran them through. And then he impaled them on a pole and put them up on the pole until sunset. 
This is what happened to the king of Jericho. This is what happened to the king of Ai. This is what happened to all 31 of the kings that we read about. Gruesome. These kings had been hiding in a cave, and after they had been on their uh, poles for the day, were tossed back into that cave, and large rocks placed in front of it. And the scripture says those rocks are there to this day. The judgment of the Lord. So the southern cities become conquered, and the northern kings become defeated. And by the time we get to chapter 12, our text for today, we read of the 31 kings and all who were defeated by Joshua. Now this takes only a few chapters. The Lord saves as he continues to move Israel forward towards its destiny, towards its promise. And yet there's still much to be done. When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken. And the Lord recounts the lands. As for the inhabitants of the mountain regions from Lebanon to Mizrephath, Neam, that is, all of the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance as I have instructed you and divide it as an inheritance among the nine and a half tribes Nine and a half tribes of Manasseh. So some had inherited and others had not. There's a division of land described east of the Jordan. And 14 continues this. And 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. We get to the end of 19 and the division of the lands, which was specified by God to Moses and fulfilled by Joshua or well underway by Joshua, we get to the end of this section, which I encourage you to read on your own, and we find that there is an allotment given Joshua. Joshua is given a town named Timnath Serah. It's in the hill country of Ephraim. And he built up the town and settled there. Verse 20, chapter 20, excuse me. For all of what appears to be barbarism and genocide to our eyes earlier on, we find an advancement in legal thinking that takes place in chapter 20. It's a counter to what we would have intuited based on the brutality of what we see earlier, and yet here it is, very plain and simple. And it's the standard of murder one today. Murder is not... Murder one is defined as having taken place in a premeded fashion with malice aforethought. That is the essential definition of murder one. And it comes straight out of this chapter. Because what God instructed Israel to do was set up cities of refuge so that those who had committed what would be manslaughter by our definition, or perhaps uh, even murder too, would have a place to go having not intended to kill. Having not purposed with malice of forethought to commit this, this terrible deed. And the cities of refuge were to protect people from the one who would be the avenger. We live in the time of Joshua, and Jesus will correct this later on in case you get confused. Jesus says, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, which is the law of lex talionis, or the law of revenge. 
But I say to you, turn the other cheek. Do you remember that? Jesus offers a corrective. He sets a new course for us as Christians. But the law that was reigning at the time of Joshua was eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, life for a life. And if you killed my brother, it was my obligation to kill you. I would be the one avenging his blood by taking your blood. And if you had killed my brother by accident or mistake or some other thing, you could flee to the city of refuge and there I would not be permitted to harm you. You would not be handed outside the city gate for me to do with you as I pleased. And that was what God set up. It's places of refuge where people who had a case to make for innocence could live and not be killed and not perpetuate injustice. And then there are towns for the Levites. At the end of the day, 48 of them, I believe, that were set up. Uh, These towns, the Levites did not have an inheritance as did all the other tribes. They had towns from each tribal inheritance. And they were allowed to pasture their sheep and goats and oxen and whatever outside the gates of the city. And they were allowed to live there and do their work and services there. But this is how the Lord set things up for the people. This is how God made provision. When we get to the end of Joshua, we find Joshua issuing a farewell and reminding them of the way in which God has led. 23 and 24. Verse 6 of 23, Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Don't associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the name of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations. To this day, no one has been able to withstand you. One of you routes a thousand because the Lord your God fights for you just as promised. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. He reminds them that if they turn away, they will be perished. They will perish, and the good land given them will be taken from them. Chapter 24. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says long ago. Your fathers, forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him through Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau... I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron. I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. 
You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, the son of Zippor, and king of Moab prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, the son of Beor, to put a curse on you, but I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites, that I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. But you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities which you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped from beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was buried in his hometown. And there's reference made to Joseph's bones and so forth. And now to wrap it all up. The story we read in Genesis, we read of these rivers and this land of inheritance and promise. This place called Eden. And as long as God was God to Adam and Eve, it was their home. And they listened to the one in the tree that God had forbidden them to to eat of. And paradise was lost. They chose to worship another god. In fact, they chose to become their own gods, knowing good and evil. And so often we do the same. And in Revelation, we find something else, but not too distant from what we've just discussed. In Revelation 21... Six to eight, we find this description of an alpha and omega, a beginning and an end. The one who will give to those who are thirsty drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. To the overcomer, the inheritance and the covenant, I will be his God and he will be my son. But to the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, those who practice magic arts, murderous, the sexually immoral, idolaters, and all liars, their place will be the fire of the lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. It is the same story as the story of Joshua and the people. And it's always been the same story. 
God is God. He's created and called a people. He gives them a land that they did not create, a garden to toil in which they did not plant. He prepares for them a land of inheritance which has cities and vineyards and groves which they did not build or plant. He provides for them and he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he says, stay only to me. Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be swayed by all of this around you. For I am your God. And then he says at the end of all of this, I give you a city. A city you didn't build. And vineyards you didn't plant. An inheritance in the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. It's a place where those who have made me their God dwell. It is a place for those who have inherited the land and the promise with courage. It is a place for them to be. It is a place for those who haven't been pulled aside by the idolatry that surrounds them. It's a place for people who haven't been self-deceived into believing they're their own gods. It's a place where each of you belong. It's a place where I belong. And it's a place God calls us each to. Because the story of Joshua isn't just the story of a military conquest of a tract of land that means little to most of us. The story of Joshua is not just the painful delineation of real estate between 12 tribes. The story of Joshua is not the story of God's moral failure and genocide. The story of Joshua is the story of one who showed us again the way. Be strong and courageous, for I, the Lord your God, will give you an inheritance. And so, Lord, keep these your people strong in the strength of the Lord, for the battle is the Lord's. Amen.